Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, once again, today in this episode, we're going to talk about someone's journey. We're going to talk about uh, alternative assets and and how they've gotten to where they are. Uh, this man I've known for going on about five years, someone that I admire, um, someone that I've done business with, and um, really have enjoyed seeing his journey unfold over the, the last few years. He is someone that started with a corporate career and really kind of converted his mindset from Wall Street assets to real assets. He is the CEO of Match Real Real Asset Partners. Please help me welcome Mark Livingston. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Actually, I didn't tell you before we started. I just, um, here we're recording this in late May. We just finished up a uh, mastermind meeting with other land investors, which is how you and I met. It was a two-day event at 10 people. Just great, intimate conversation. So I'm uh, coming off a high from that. Crashed yesterday, and uh, here I am back up and at it today. How you doing? Good, good. I also uh, have a, a passive income mastermind that I'm a member of, and we had an event last week. And so I kind of have a high coming off that myself. So <laughs> great to talk to other people in it. Absolutely. Well, um, you and I met through LandGeek and Mark uh, Podolsky and and uh, kept in touch over the years. We've had dinner together a number of times. You're you're in Houston. I'm in Minnesota, so it's not like we get to see each other often. But always love hearing what you're up to and what you've been doing. Uh, but um, everyone else who's listening to us right now hasn't met you yet, and so. Uh, Mark, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about yourself. You know, where did you grow up and what was it like growing up for you? Sure. So I was born in Southern California, where my parents were also born and raised. Uh, my dad was an engineer and my mom was a homemaker. And I have two younger brothers, but we're all pretty close in age. So, you know, growing up there in Southern California, we stayed there through my age, about 14, and then we moved to Texas. And that's how I ended up in Texas. Mm. My dad was the kind of guy who was a lot of do-it-yourself kind of stuff. Um, I, I think that's pretty common with a lot of engineers, but he also always wanted to talk to me about investing um, we talked a lot about investing in stocks, uh, and this was, you know, in you know late '60s, early '70s, probably when a lot of people didn't really do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also talked about, you know, entrepreneurship, even though he had started any businesses on his own. Uh, the, but he did uh, try that on his own when uh, I was in high school, and so I got to see firsthand, you know the grit that he put in to try to build a little business. Um, He ultimately ended up failing, but I think there was a lot of learning going on there. And that kind of, you know, set me on a path towards having, you know, an interest in entrepreneurship. But then again, you know, the world teaches you go to college, get a good job, you know, say for retirement. And so I did go to college. I, um, I ended up getting a degree in accounting and the reason for choosing that major was basically I felt pretty good with math um, and I had that interest in business and I thought, okay, accounting sounds like the math side of business. I've since learned there's a lot of other ways to tackle that uh, goal, but that's how I ended up in accounting. Interesting. So with, um, 
your dad and, and talking about stocks, did you, when you were real young, did he like set up an account for you at all? Or did, you know, did you work and start investing that way? You know, how did, when did you start investing with it? Not until working years after college, you know, what was that like? I really started in the working years. Um, you know, my, while well, we talked about it a lot, uh, as I recall, what we did was, a, I would say more paper trading, you know, he showed me how to look in the newspaper to find the stock quotes from previous days, a little bit about how to do some research, um, that type of thing. But which I didn't is, really get started until, until I was working. Which still, having that education, right? You know, it gives you exposure, gets you thinking about it, probably had some influence in uh, the accounting decision, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it for sure led me into the, the business school, right? You know, just taught me that uh, to me, that was where, where, where life was, you know, that was interesting to me was just how do businesses work? How do they, how do they create value? How do they make money? And then you're, you're starting to work where you uh, public accountant, you got your CPA, I think, right. And that is, yeah, that is correct. I started in public accounting, spent four years doing those external audits of public companies and, uh, and even got some exposure to some private companies too. You know, they often still need uh, their, their financial statements audited. And after that, I moved into internal audit, which was um, really a good move for me. Helped me learn a lot more about overall the, what goes on in the business than just being in accounting. And um, so you're doing your work in years and, by the time I think you and I met, you were CFO or our CFO. I can't remember what. Yeah, it's not technically CFO. It's chief accounting officer. So, you know, in public companies, there's a designated chief financial officer and a chief accounting officer. And oftentimes those are the same person. In our company and the last company I worked for, the chief financial officer is not a CPA. Mm-hmm. And therefore, your chief accounting officer has to be a CPA under the SEC rules. So I was the chief accounting officer in both of those situations and still there today. And so, you know, your, your background and what I've always admired about you, you know, you're, you're analytical, you know, you get into the weeds of this, of these various things. And uh, someone that I would trust to look over the big picture in the books and, and whatnot, you know, how did that influence you as you started to look at investments and tell us about that, that part of your journey? Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you look at public companies, um, what I noticed, and I think a lot of people noticed is that everything is, is geared towards, you know, or strategized towards keeping the stock price up and the, and the quarterly release of earnings. And it's hard to find public companies that truly invest for the long term. You know, probably the most well-known example, I think, in today's market would be Amazon because for years and years, they were losing money. Yeah. And Jeff Bezos kept saying, we're investing for the long term. We don't care about the quarterly returns. And SEC, I mean, not the SEC, the, the investment community didn't like that, you know, and, but look where he ended up, yeah, you know, and investing for the long term, I think is a better way to go because uh, companies have to live for the long term. They don't live day to day, although they should, you know, they're treated that way. For sure. And so how did you, uh, how has your thinking, I mentioned at the beginning, your, your thinking evolve? you know, from the Wall Street assets to the, to the real assets. Tell us about that story. You know, wh- when did you start investing in the Wall Street assets and how has that shifted for you over time? So I would say it's a, right about 10 years ago, somebody uh, mentioned a book called Multiple Streams of Income by Robert Allen. Great book. And they mentioned it because we were talking about ways to create other forms of income besides your day job. And that was eye-opening to me that you could 
I, th- I think his basic concept is you can work once to create an asset that keeps paying you for a long time, potentially even the rest of your life. And that was really what kickstarted that journey for me. You know, I read the Rich Dad Poor Dad books, you know, or the Robert Kiyosaki books, Rich Dad Poor Dad, Cash Flow Quadrant, those types of things. And that's what really changed my mindset is just thinking about investing in a completely different way than what we're taught to invest through Wall Street. And I could go on, you know, in 2015, I basically formed my first business plan in an LLC. I started attending meetups, listening to podcasts, talking to various coaches. And finally, I got started, you know, with that land flipping program that Mark Podolsky has, you know, called the Land Geeks, who you, you and I met through there. And I look at it as that was really my, my gateway drug to investing outside Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And how, how would you talk about that journey for you in land? You know, did you like it, not like it, pros, cons? You know, what would you say to the audience who's heard my journey about it? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some pros and cons. Um, the pros that I that really turned me on was that you could start small and grow at your own pace. And the profit potential on each little deal was very, very good. You know, very good double-digit returns on each individual investment. And the other piece that I that really kind of hit home for me was that they had a program where they taught you how to build the process around that and then how to automate that process and um, outsource a lot of that process so that you truly worked on the business but didn't have to spend a ton of time working in the business. And then, you know, once, once you have that infrastructure in place, then you can scale up and grow the business without increasing the amount of time you're having to spend on it. Absolutely. What about cons? You know, what the cons. So the cons for me were that I was at, at, a, at a certain point, I was still dealing with um, the buyers and sellers and trying to find the right assistance to delegate to. And I, what really happened was there was a point there where I also got, my eyes exposed to other types of investments. And I realized that there was, there was a shift that I needed to make because it just fit my personality better. So, so the con wasn't that that business was a con. I'm not, that sounds terrible, that's <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what I meant, but that the, but that the cons to that business style were, um, I, I don't know where I'm going with that, Dave. Let's let's just back well, up. Well, I, I, I think, you know, I think where you are going, and please correct me, Mark, if I have this wrong, is it is time intensive to um, yes. learn it, set up the team, put in systems, and constantly monitoring, tweaking. And if you want to scale, you know, you, you have to put time into it. And it's not an s- insignificant amount of time. It's a significant amount of time. To, it is to yeah. to run the business. It's not a Tim hour, a Tim Ferris, you know, four hour work week. If you're trying to scale the company, yes, I would agree. And keep in mind, I had a day job um, at the time, and I, yeah, that's basically it. I know, I know you can you can reduce that amount of time the more you can delegate, but it does take a lot of time to build the business first. Well, it's, it's changed over the last five years since you and I started in it too, where there are so many more people coaching and teaching and uh, Costilla County where a lot of us started, you know, we used to buy it for 800 bucks and now it's like 2,500. The market has shifted in certain areas. Some are more competitive than, than others. And I know other people that, that are alums like us and have been around for a while. You know, some people have said, oh gosh, I'm not going back there again. Other people still kind of plant their flag there. And uh, it, it's fascinating seeing um, 
the industry changing in terms of marketing and how you sell and this mastermind this last weekend we were talking about texting now rather than mailing to get yeah. properties yeah and um the well, the ways of acquiring them like i've done a lot of tax liens to acquire properties and so there's more and more ways that people are going about acquiring properties than just mailing like when we started yeah and there and there is there's one con to the business that i turned really into a pro for for me and hopefully others that i that i partnered with and that is i realized one limitation to the growth is the cash to buy the properties right sure. when you put the cash in you're still waiting to get your cash out and you get it out pretty fast in this line of business but if you're actually growing the business very fast you do run out of investable cash pretty fast and what i realized was i could partner with people to provide the cash for them and share in the profits and then they can grow faster and i can create more passive income for myself without actually doing the work that they're doing i'm more you know finding the funds and providing the funds for those investments and i think that was really the beginning of the the change in mindset for me i still love the business but change how i approached it and what have what have been the pros and cons of the deal funding for you well finding more money um you know at first i just used my own money my own investable cash for those um but eventually i run out of cash too <laughs> right and um you know, and I want to keep investing. So it's finding more money. And so that's when I started getting exposed to finding other people's money and helping those people become investors too. Oh, that's good. Well, I, I think of the pros being, hey, you don't have to do all the work to find the deal and sell it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's up to someone else. The cons being, of course, you don't capture all the profits um, uh, with that. So you're saving yourself time, um, but you're, you're missing some of the, the upside. So, you know, it's kind of a mm -hmm. time or money kind of a thing, but you can really scale that thing too. Like you said, you know, in terms of even scaling a funding business is possible. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing that even opened your eyes further to doing some of, some of the other stuff. So what have some been some of the other things outside of land in the last five years that you've done, looked into, tried, maybe some things worked out great. Some things didn't. Yeah, there was uh there was one type I did try about the same time as the land investing, and that was um, sandwich lease deals on single family housing. Hmm. And I won't go into the details there because I I tried it for basically about three months and realized that just just wasn't a good fit for me for what what I was having to do to get that business started. I still like single family housing. I think there's huge demand for it in, in the country, you know, and that probably I think will continue for the next several years. But, um, but what's really happened since uh, the land business and becoming more of, a, of an investor than, than an operator on that side is I started learning more about syndicating investments and looking at other types of investments and for me, keep in mind, I'm working, you know, have a W-2 job. Eventually, I realized that there was a lot of real estate investing out there. And one of the big benefits for it is you get, you can create a lot of depreciation. Now, this is not the land business, but all your developed properties. And that keeps your taxes down, but it doesn't work for W-2 investors. Because the tax, um, the IRS tax code keeps those separate. You know, it basically says if you're W two, that's your active side of your world, your taxing world, and real estate is always going to be on the passive side for you. And that's the bucket I was in. Um, but conversely, I also learned that anything related to oil and gas, the IRS tax code says that's active even if you're passive in the investment. Mm. So somebody like me can invest in some oil and gas producing assets and get depreciation or depletion or other types of tax deductions and use those to reduce the tax 
on my W-2 income. So again, another mindset change, you know, and um, it's led me more towards energy producing assets, at least currently. Well, it's, um, I don't know if I ever told you, but growing up, my favorite game was called Wildcatter. It's like Monopoly, except you're drilling for oil. And so you can, you can uh, have a hit and put a producing well on there, or you get a dry hole. And my dad actually was in the oil and gas industry. And uh, what's great about this game, you didn't have to have a monopoly. You could just start drilling and then you had a dice and you had to hit certain odds. So like, for example, you had to get a three or under to get a producing well. If you got a four, five, or six, you got a dry hole. So uh, I feel I, I, that game gave me a little bit of an understanding of what it's like. And I highly recommend anyone who's interested in this stuff to try out that game if you like a Monopoly style game, because it'll teach you about oil and gas to a degree. And uh, it's a lot of fun. You ever played it before? No, I haven't even heard about it. Sounds pretty interesting. It came out in like the 80s. So it's an old game you can find like on eBay or something, I think. Um, Yeah, I'll have to look for that. But, you know, my education with the energy business I think really happens because I live in Houston, which is the center of that industry. And there's been a few companies I've worked for that are uh, energy service related companies. So they serve, provide services to those energy companies. And that's where a lot of my education about how that industry works comes from. And so when, when you're investing in that, you know, I'm certain there's a lot of different ways that a person could do it on the financial planning side. You know, I've seen cases where, um, especially back in the, the mid 2000s, when I was in my first decade in the industry, there would be these um, products that um, were commission type products where were private placements. And essentially uh, you got to participate in uh, wildcatter in a sense with, mm-hmm. with um, people that would go and drill and you'd have operators and and people that would own the rigs. And this was typically out in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, that uh, deep water horizon, you know, type stuff. Some were deeper, mm-hmm. some were deeper, some were shallower. Uh, none of these were in the, um, like the Bakken, you know, here in, in the Dakotas, you know, they were all right. out, out in the Gulf. And um, what, what, as I looked at the history and I was analyzing performance, what um, became pretty clear to me was a lot of these people um, advertised it with these huge returns, but often it was like, oh, people got their money back. And it paid the advisor really well. Like an advisor would get a 7% selling commission for selling the thing, but then clients couldn't liquidate it. You know, it, it wasn't a liquid asset and they were stuck in it and just waiting for distributions to come, which might even take like two years for distributions to start. And they were incredibly tax efficient, just like you were saying. Um, so as, as you started analyzing the space and looking at different things, you know, like what, what appealed to you, what didn't appeal to you, you know, walk us through kind of how you decided to invest in what you have invested in. And now for a commercial break. Have you ever seen that ING commercial that has a bunch of people walking around with random numbers hanging over their head? Like one has 700,581,000 floating over their head. Another has 2,348,000 over there. And then another person is carrying this number, big old number, $1,438,921. And this can be so confusing. What is the difference between one or the other? How can they be so different? And it begs this question, what is my number? What does it take for me to retire? Well, if you've been wondering that, my friends, I put together this little ebook that's about 20 pages long, so quick, easy to read, called What's My Number? And it walks you through enough scenarios to try and help you answer that question and give you some feedback and thoughts in terms of, do we have enough money? You don't wanna be that physician that has to go back to work after being retired. So 
If you want to grab this report, we would love to make it available to you. Please give us a call at 612-284-2409, and we'd be happy to email that What's My Number report to you. Again, give us a call, 612-284-2409, and we can send the What's My Number report to you. And now, back to the show. So I do have one investment that's a little bit similar to what you described. It's, um, it's, it's not well-specific, but it is related to a particular oil field that an operator owns. And I got to know these guys through some regular meetings. I would see them and, and just got to, got to know the guys pretty well that ran the business. Um, and they happened to find, um, an opportunity two years ago, back when oil went negative for a couple weeks there. Uh, so they got a great buy in, um, but I continued to just study the opportunity with them. I didn't invest right away, but eventually they came out with a private placement, uh, where you would basically get a participation in what happened over the whole field. So if they ended up drilling hundred wells or 200 wells or 500 wells over the life of this property, you were, you got a, you know, specific percentage participation. And, um, this was on land. So it wasn't offshore like you talk about, but it was, uh, it was, uh, in an area that I actually knew from previous experience. So I, I, I kind of drew on a lot of experiences to, have some trust there. Um, but I agree with you, you know, if, you know, if you're investing in one well, kind of like your game, you said, maybe you got a 50, 50% shot that it hits anything. Um, and this I liked because it was a percentage in all the wells, you know, that ever get drilled. And, um, the other thing I do realize same as you experienced is these things are slow to develop the oil business does not turn on a dime. You know, right now we have very high oil prices and politicians are calling for, you know, anybody they can talk to in the world to produce more oil. Well, they just can't turn it on fast. They got to go find it. They got to develop it. It takes years for these projects to get developed, you know, and bring, bring the oil product to market. So they don't, they generally are not going to turn into cash flow quickly is my experience with those types of investments. Now I have found others where you can be in the energy business and it's not like that. And I'd be happy to talk about what I found there. Yeah, we do. So, you know, there's a lot of push for years now on climate change and how that relates to the energy business and hydrocarbon energy specifically. And what I found uh, about two years ago was an investment opportunity in some CO2 scrubbing equipment. And now, what does that mean? So, CO2 so CS, yeah. So in the, in the climate change world, CO2 is one of the bad elements in the atmosphere because we are producing more CO2, increasing that content in the atmosphere. And that is, um, you know, supposedly creating more, uh, more global warming. So we want to reduce that, right? So this CO2 scrubber is specifically used um, right now in West Texas in the Permian Basin on natural gas wells. So what many people may not realize is when these guys drill for natural gas, that natural gas is not pure when it comes out of the ground. It has a lot of other gases mixed in that um, contaminate the natural gas while it's down in the geologic formations. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. I know up in the Kansas and Oklahoma region, in that Anadarko region, a lot of the gas is um, mixed with nitrogen. Mm. So when you separate out that nitrogen, well, 80% of the atmosphere is already nitrogen. You can kind of just let that nitrogen go and it's it doesn't, and, and nitrogen is not a, a greenhouse gas, so it doesn't cause a problem. Now, there are uh, 
there are solutions to using the nitrogen too. There's a lot of uses for it um, and you can sell that nitrogen. But differently in the Permian Basin in West Texas, a lot of the gas is infiltrated with carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. 20% or 30% of the gas when it comes out of the ground, you know, maybe CO2. And so what this equipment does is it's mobile equipment that the operator can lease from us and um, take it to the well site, run the natural gas through this equipment. And there's a fluid in there, a solvent in there that'll absorb all the CO2 out of the gas. And then the operator has a clean gas that they could put into the interstate pipeline system. And they don't want the CO2, so they're happy that the solvent absorbs it and takes it away. Now the owners of the equipment take that solvent with that's fully absorbed with CO2 and inject the CO2 back into the ground to sequester that CO2 back in the ground so that the CO2 never gets into the atmosphere. Interesting. So very expensive piece of equipment. I'm sure this is not, Yeah. this is not uh, go to Home Depot and buy for, you know, no. a generator for 10,000 bucks or something. No, you're talking, you know, 800,000 to a million dollars for each piece of equipment. And there's a couple of different variations of that that impact cost and what, what those pieces can do. But, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, they're going to pay quite a bit of money to lease from us. They don't buy it. They just lease it from, and I'm, I'm saying us, I'll get to a point here. Um, so, so the, uh, the operator is getting a huge benefit besides pulling the CO2 out of their gas so that their gas is pure when it goes into the pipeline, they can get CO2 um, carbon carbon credits from the government for mm-hmm. pulling that CO2 and because that CO2 is put back in the ground. So, so that uh, oil and gas operators, you know, getting a couple of different benefits there from doing that. Interesting. And this, this piece of equipment that um, you're, you're, part of, of leasing, you know, it's, it's not crazy expensive though. I mean, we're not talking about like a $10 million piece of equipment, you know, like I imagine a lot of the big dumb yellow, you know, uh, uh, huge, you know, commercial construction things probably cost. Um, so it's, it's not like you have to have a insane amount of money, you know, like 10 million bucks or something to invest into one of these uh, for most of us retail investors. Um, And, but it only lasts for so long, I would imagine too, right? It's not going to last forever. It probably needs some maintenance, someone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me talk about how I got to investing in this and then how I got to bringing other investors into this type of deal. So if you remember talking about my tax problem, which is how I migrated towards the oil and gas side of the tax equation. So this equipment, um, the way it is structured as an investment, uh, the fund borrows 50% of the cost and then takes equity from investors for the other 50% of the cost. So, The beauty of that is the depreciation on the equipment is now two times the investment. So for the investor, for every dollar they invest, they're going to get $2 of depreciation. And there's a couple of pieces of tax code that are very favorable for investors like me. Let me just repeat that again, just to make sure I got that right. Every $1 that's invested $2 of depreciation. That's correct. So that's like, I invest 50,000 bucks. I just got a hundred thousand dollar write off. Correct. And you can use that to reduce your W2 income. As well as um, I'm sure there'd be some income that comes, comes from From the the thing as as well. So if let's say you put in 50 grand and it makes, I don't know, 30,000 in year one. I don't know what's realistic here, but yeah, right. or 20,000 in year one, you know, you might have $80,000 worth of write-offs. Yeah. Let me, let me clarify there. So, 
So the, the return, the way the fund is structured from the sponsor is the, you have to think about the cash flow within the fund. So the fund, the fund actually owns the equipment. There's an operating partner to the fund. So they share in the revenue. So then there's revenue that comes into the fund. And the first thing the fund does is make a quarterly payment on the debt. Because remember, we borrowed 50% of the cost of the equipment. So they use the cash to continually reduce that debt. That debt actually gets paid off within three years. Hmm. But there's also enough cash to make payments to the passive investors uh, starting in the first full quarter that that um, piece of equipment is working. And it's structured where the investors are going to get a fixed preferred return uh, on their investment. So in your example, if they invest $50,000 and it's the, the dollar amount doesn't matter, I'm just using the, your, your example here, they get a 10% cash on cash return every quarter for 28 quarters or seven years. So on that 50,000, they're going to start getting 5,000 per quarter cash return. So over the life of the investment, those 28 quarters, they're going to receive $140,000 in cash. And they also got that $100,000 of depreciation to offset taxable income. Is that depreciation all in your one mark or does it get spread out over the Yeah, that's, that's a um, great question. So right now there's bonus depreciation available to this type of investment. That's um, where bonus depreciation is where the tax code allows you to take extra uh, depreciation in the year that the investment is made. And for the last few years, I think it goes back to the tax code that Trump put in in 2017, that bonus depreciation has been 100% per year. So they could use all of that depreciation in the same year they make the investment. Now, this is the last year that it's going to be at 100%. Next year, it drops to 80%. Following year, 60%. And it scales down to, I think, maybe 20% at some point. So it's, it's timely from a tax perspective for this kind of an investment for the next few definitely. years anyhow. Definitely. So, um, so let me give you an example. If, uh, if some, somebody's in the six figures and in income, there's a big marginal tax bracket of 35% that a lot of people fit into. If they invest to 50,000, they get that $100,000 of depreciation in 2022. That $100,000 of depreciation would save them approximately $35,000 of taxes. So now they've invested 50 and they immediately have saved $35,000 in taxes this year. So they're already getting back most of their investment pretty quickly. And then the cash return is pretty darn good, as I mentioned, 10% per quarter, roughly 40% per year. And I would imagine that, of course, nothing in life is guaranteed. You know, someone's, someone's listening to this and saying, okay, what's, what's, what's the downside here? And uh, I'm sure the other elephant in the room that people are thinking is, how are you being compensated, you know, right. for, for um, helping to manage this and introduce it or whatever, because you're not just doing this for nonprofit reasons, I'm sure. So um, can you, you walk us through the first question, you know, in terms of how could this go wrong, you know, in terms of the equipment yeah. busting or, yeah. um, you know, address, help us understand that's the cons of this particular thing. Yeah. So, yeah, probably repairs and maintenance, I would say the be the biggest risk as it is with any type of equipment. Now, the operating partner that actually operates the equipment in, in that partnership agreement between the fund and the operator, their share of the revenue, it, they are required to make all repairs and maintenance. So, that, so if anything breaks, it's their job to pay for repairs to get it fixed. Now, they're incentivized to get it fixed because they're getting a share of the revenue. So they want to get the equipment back to work. 
So I feel like there's the right incentive there to keep them, uh, you know, keep them incentivized to, to make those repairs and get that equipment back to work. The estimated life span is at least eight to 10 years on this. And that's why the fund was structured to make sure the investors got everything they were going to get within seven years. So um, theoretically, you know, out eight to 10 years, either the equipment, you know, just will require too much refurbishment to go back to work, or it um, maybe it could be refurbished, you know, and put back to work, but the GPs, you know, will be the only ones left in that fund. And it'll be their responsibility to determine what to do about that at that point in time. GPs being general partners as but, opposed yeah, to limited opposed partners. To, correct. Now, uh, my involvement, I started with this just because I wanted to invest because it would give me that big tax benefit and, the, and good passive income. But after probably eight or nine months of talking to the sponsor about this. Um, this is a guy that I was seeing all the time because um, we're, we're attending common events. He basically told me there was so much growth and demand for this equipment that he was even struggling to raise enough capital for this type of investment and asked me if I would co-sponsor with him. Now, co-sponsor basically means I'm gonna be a co-GP with him on this investment. And so there is, you know, incentive for me too. So the compensation, as you asked, is in the, in that flow of funds, remember the revenue comes into the fund. First step is make the debt payments that take in the first three years that's happening. Second step is make that preferred return to the, to the investor uh, LPs. They start getting, payments with after the first full quarter of work, and that continues for seven years. Any cash that falls out below that, that's what the GP sponsors are getting. And in this case, I share that with, with my co-sponsor. Awesome, no, that's, that's great. And I think um, big picture, you know, what I, I like about this opportunity, number one, it's unique. I uh, have never heard of this before till you, you brought it up, you know, certainly it's, not something easy for someone to do individually. You have to have the That's connections for it. Correct. Um, as well as the capital, obviously one person yeah. to make a million dollar investment. That's a lot of dough um, for someone to do. Um, I, I think what's nice about it, it's not what I've seen in my experience before of being deep water drilling and taking years to set up cash flow, and you might end up having a dry hole and not, not hitting right. anything. Right. Um, when when you you and I met like a month ago or a few weeks ago, whenever it was, talking about this, what I liked too was that it's bigger companies leasing it, like X, the Exxon Mobiles and ConocoPhillips and you know big correct. oil companies. It's not some fly by night thing. So I think that all is of, correct. All of those are are positive, as well as the tax um, benefits you mentioned. Um, yeah, so yeah. These all- tax codes that it applies to have been around for decades. You know, they're not something new. Um, the IRS code has always given favorable tax treatment to oil and gas development and production. Bonus depreciation has been around for a long time. The only thing that seems to change is, you know, what percentage they allow in a given year. That kind of goes up and down over time as, as you know, at the whims of Congress. Absolutely. Yeah, I think all those are great things about it. And I guess what I would always consider anyone listening to think about what is this investment or anything else. Um, and just like with my land business, it's not liquid, right? So someone can't just cash out of this if they have a hailstorm and they need a new roof or something on their house, you know? That, so, is, that is correct. So you, you've got to make sure you have plenty of liquid assets on hand um, so that you're not re- requiring this investment to do it. Obviously there's some risk with it. There's no guarantees in life. Um, in terms of, I don't know, ExxonMobil or someone breaking a lease, you know, I'm sure there would be consequences for doing such things. But then yeah. there, uh, if right now, obviously things are pretty hot, things are needed, oil prices drop significantly again, you know, who knows what could happen with um, leases on these things and operating them and whatever. 
but frankly, I don't see that happening anytime soon <laughs> of the next year or two with the world situation in Russia and the need for nat gas and oil. If anything, it probably just increases it in the short term, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I would say, um, in my opinion, I think the, the other thing, obviously, is um, when you're not doing it yourself, you know, you're not getting all the profit from it, but it allows you to do more investments um, when you have these kinds of opportunities that, that happen. Am I missing anything, Mark? You know, major points for someone to think about when they're considering an investment like this with your company or anyone else? Um, yeah, you pretty much hit on it. I would go back to the very beginning. You mentioned the name of my company, Match Real Asset Partners. The reason I put partner in that in the beginning is I fully expected that I would partner with people. I've always believed that, um, you know, teams of people with different experience, different skill sets, different knowledge base coming together, you know, on a common project are going to produce way better solutions than people working on their own. And so I, I always expected that you'd partner with people. And of course, you would need to share the profits to make sure that everybody's incentivized properly. Um, so you take a smaller slice, but it also gives you the ability to work on more assets, more investment opportunities, right? So you're spreading yourself, you're diversifying, you know, your investment portfolio. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's really just, you know, continually learning, continually looking at different opportunities, different types of assets, looking at different types of investors, that's why, that's why I put the word match in there. I view it as it's a, it's a match making process, right? Um, and finding those right things. In this case, I found one that works good for me. It works good for most working professionals. So any other executives, doctors, lawyers, accountants, dentists, you know, they're all stuck in that uh, W-2 or 1099 income world. And this, this is a type of investment that can work really well for them. I would argue land investors as well, since we don't get any depreciation. That's an excellent point. I, I had thought about that, even though I didn't mention it. Well, uh, Mark, if people are interested, they want to pick your brain further on this or, or learn more about these various opportunities, where can they find you? Uh, Sure. So I have a special report that I wrote. Uh, It's basically on the differences between investing on Main Street versus on Wall Street. So if any of your listeners want to get this free report, I've set up a special email for that. They can send an email to freedomformula at matchrealassetpartners.com. When they send that email to that, um, to that address. I'll send your listeners that special report. So all they got to do is send that, send that email. It's freedom formula at match real asset partners.com. And, uh, once they have that report from me, they'll have my contact information. If they want, I'm happy to set up a call with them and discuss my journey in a lot more detail. We could talk about some of the things we talked about today, but overall, really, you know, I just I love talking to people and looking for ways to help them reduce their taxes, increase their passive cash flow, uh, and help them create a strategy if that's what they need. So again, you know, just to make sure they understand the email, it's freedom formula at matchrealassetpartners.com. Awesome. Well, Mark, it's it's been so wonderful getting to know you over the last few years and Looking forward to seeing how this all goes for you. And who knows, maybe I'll join you in it one of these days and uh, we'll see how she blows. But um, thank you so much for being with us. Any other closing thoughts or anything you want to share? No, I just, I really appreciate having me on your podcast. And uh, next time I'm in Minnesota, I'll give you a call and see if we can have that dinner again. All right. Hit me up. All right, my friends, that, that wraps up the episode for today. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. 
Thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded from registration. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.